This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. ES Audio. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm John Weeks and this is The Leader. As the UK's economy continues to struggle, the Bank of England has been forced into an emergency move to buy back billions of pounds of government debt to try to stabilise financial markets. It revealed plans to buy as many long-dated government bonds as needed between now and the 14th of October. The Bank of England stressed that it was also trying to protect households and businesses who face spiralling mortgage and borrowing costs. Following the announcement, the pounds continues to fall and top bankers met with the Chancellor as he sought to defuse the economic crisis sparked by his many budget announcements. Joining me now to explain what's happened is the Evening Standard's economic expert, Stephen King. So, Stephen, can you explain in layman's terms what exactly is happening? Well, we had the mini budget on Friday, which frankly didn't go down very well with financial markets. Effectively, what the government is trying to do is to borrow a lot more from its domestic and overseas creditors to fund much bigger tax cuts than perhaps people had originally expected. Now, obviously, the government is hoping this is going to reinvigorate the economy uh, over the next few years. But the problem is you've got to persuade people now to lend the money. And two things have happened since the mini-budget. Foreign creditors have become increasingly nervous, which is why sterling has been so weak. And at the same time, any creditor has become increasingly nervous, which is why gilt yields have risen so far. So basically, the borrowing costs that the government has to pay on its debt that it issues for other people. So... That's what's kind of happened. But the problem with the rise in in guilt yields is that it all happens so incredibly quickly that it risks some degree of significant turbulence within the financial system. And so the Bank of England has stepped in, basically, to say, well, look, we can't have that kind of turbulence. Therefore, we'll have to effectively buy back these guilts and try to stabilise the market. We'll be a kind of buyer of last resort, uh, because there's a fear that without Bank of England actions, there could be some severe financial market dislocations. Of course, the problem with this is that simultaneously, the Bank of England is saying, we're going to buy back these guilds, we're going to support the guild market, we're going to push long-term interest rates down. But at the same time, they're saying that later this year, they may have to raise interest rates, short-term interest rates, more than was the case previously, because of the impact on sterling of the mini budget. And you mentioned guilt yields there. Can you explain what they are and how buying them helps? 
Well, gilt yields are effectively the yields or the interest rates that um, the government has to pay uh, when it borrows from other people, whether it be pension funds or insurance companies or any one of us who, in theory, can buy gilts through national savings certificates. And the yield or the interest rate is a sort of measure in one sense of the confidence or otherwise that the government's creditors have in the government's plan. So other things equal, um, if you're nervous about the government's plan, you might demand a higher yield. And if you're feeling relaxed about the government's plans and they're totally credible, you might accept a lower yield. What's been striking over the last two or three days is that those yields have jumped in the way that we haven't seen in many a year, possibly many a decade. And that kind of leap is a pretty clear sign of sudden nervousness, extreme nervousness that we haven't seen in many a year. And in terms of the Bank of England buying them back, it all sounds very artificial. Is it as artificial as it sounds, or is this actually quite a normal thing to do? Well, this kind of process started with something called quantitative easing, which came through after the global financial crisis. This was purchases of gilts, uh, or government debt, designed to drive yields lower, interest rates lower than would otherwise have been the case. And one reason for doing that was that short-term interest rates, um, the overnight rates, had collapsed to zero. And so the Bank of England was keen to show it could still reduce interest rates for longer maturity. So people who borrowed over, say, five years, 10 years, 30 years, would find that their borrowing costs were coming down relative to what might otherwise have been the case. And uh, that was an emergency measure adopted in 2009, 2010. It's been with us ever since. Uh, The problem now, I think, is that Normally, you you do these kinds of operations, assuming that the government, the government of the day, has a credible medium-term fiscal policy. Well, this particular government has announced its fiscal changes without there being any kind of clear message in terms of a credible medium-term fiscal policy, partly because, of course, they didn't invite the Office of Budget Responsibility to give its opinion on the announcements made last Friday. And it's that, in one sense, which has led not just to the financial market reaction, the increased nervousness that's come through, but also, of course, to the heavy criticism of the government by other players. So, I mean, the IMF's comments yesterday are pretty remarkable. It's not often that the IMF criticises a developed nation in the way it's criticised the UK. But it does reflect this idea that if you play fast and loose with fiscal policy, then there is a danger that you have significant financial market reactions over which you have no real control, but which can be potentially very, very damaging. And you talk about the nervousness in the market and concerns from the people who are sort of propping up the government's debts, essentially, the creditors. Who are they exactly? So all our savings in pension funds and insurance companies and so on are invested in in government gilts. Um, They're nice, liquid financial instruments that, you know, in theory, keep your money nice and safe if they give you very, very boring returns, but they're also vulnerable in the situation of rising inflation and possibly also a weakening exchange rate. Also, importantly, the UK has a very large balance of payments deficit. That basically means that the UK has to borrow from abroad. So any increase in borrowing, whether it's from the UK private sector or from the public sector, probably other things equal will require extra creditors coming in from elsewhere in the world. And to persuade them to, to lend more to the UK It may be that UK assets have to be cheaper than they have been in the past. And one instant way of making UK assets cheaper is to have a big fall in the value of of sterling, a big fall in the value of the exchange rate, which is exactly what we've seen over the course of the last few days. And in terms of the Bank of England buying billions of pounds of gilt yields or effectively government debt, where does that money come from? How does that work? (laughs) Well, this is 
one of the peculiarities of quantitative easing. Effectively, what happens is that the Bank of England's own balance sheet expands. It sort of kind of creates money from nothing um, and uses that to to buy these gilts. Um, and the reason why people worry about this is that if indeed the government is borrowing more and in effect the Bank of England is providing the funds for it, it is directly or indirectly printing money and printing money is inflationary. So on the one hand, the Bank of England is saying we're very worried about inflation, we want to get it back under control. But on the other hand, with this kind of financial instability stemming from the mini budget, it's been obliged to step in in a way that may actually undermine its ability to control inflation. So there are some big issues there about whether the Bank of England is truly independent still, or whether it is in danger of becoming a kind of institution operating to bail out a government with a very, very loose fiscal policy. So Stephen, with everything that's happened this week, this warning from the IMF today, the action that the Bank of England has taken as well, the pound dropping at the start of the week and seemingly staying quite low, it's not looking good, is it? How is all this going to affect everyday people? The obvious dangers are, first of all, weaker sterling means you know more expensive holidays abroad, uh, more expensive imports, possibly higher inflation than otherwise have been the case. And of course, the more that the Bank of England has to fight against that, the higher our interest rates likely to go, which for anyone with a you know with a mortgage is going to potentially be quite painful, particularly as some of these longer term interest rates begin to reset. Uh, you know, people can get two-year, three-year, five-year fixed mortgages, but all that's saying is that these are the longer-term interest rates that uh, the government now is beginning to have an impact on. So, basically, borrowing costs go up, and um, we all get sort of hit rather hard. <laughs> Let's take a break now. In part two, Dr. Aidan O'Sullivan, an associate professor in energy and AI at University College London tells us whether Keir Starmer's plans for a great British energy company are feasible. It needs to be backed up with investment, it needs to be backed up with long-term thinking and giving people the certainty in the market to make decisions to support that kind of target. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Joining me now is Dr. Aidan O'Sullivan, an Associate Professor in Energy and AI at University College London. First of all, Aidan, we heard yesterday Keir Starmer's plans for a publicly owned Great British Energy Company focused around green energy. What do you make of that concept? I think it's a it's a really exciting idea, and I think the energy supply market is something that's been you know continuously 
under review and kind of tweaked and changed in certain ways. So it's great to see someone take kind of a, a firm standpoint and make a, a, an innovative decision around that to do something slightly different. Um, the history of the supply market over the last 10 years, we've been trying to move away from the idea of the big six. There's obviously something new needs to happen. There needs to be a bit more innovation. And one idea is for a bit more government involvement and a bit more um, kind of regulatory and uh, kind of firm standpoint. So the great example would people would point to would be EDF, which is a publicly owned supplier in France, and how that market is operating quite differently to what we're experiencing here in the UK at the moment. And he sort of compared it with EDF Energy based in France. That comparison has been criticised because of EDF's struggles with debt. How would we avoid that problem with this publicly owned energy company? Yes, it's a really good point. And I think the debt issue is something that comes with um, scale. So obviously, there are issues as you kind of try to grow as a company and as you try to scale. And it depends on what they want to do and how they plan to see this kind of market coming in. But the criticisms towards EDF generally around debt, they can be applied to some of the other non-public funds as well. When you look at the bailouts that have been requested in order to keep some of them going, it seems like it's a much more effective way than to you know, hand over large sums of public money to private companies is to have a public company that instead has the horizon, the time horizon to take on those debts. You know, debt isn't necessarily a bad thing if you have a long enough time horizon to pay it off. And it means you can do longer term thinking if your cash flow isn't subjected to those kind of time horizons of if you can't pay the bills in two months time, all those debts incurred are, are lost. So it works out better because we end up with a stronger energy market where we can take a more long term view. Um, so the idea around debt isn't necessarily a bad thing if it's used in the right way. And there are suggestions that a publicly owned energy firm like this could undercut the rest of the competition and cause those businesses to close. Obviously, something we don't want. Is that something that could happen? It's certainly one of the kind of concerns of having a government owned company playing in the same markets. You can do it. It can be done in, in a competitive way. I mean, you can kind of uh, off-gen, the regulator can treat it kind of as one of the same and allow it to compete at, at that level. It depends on the scale as well. Again, you know, you have these scale issues of, you know, uh, can it even handle a million customers? You know, as, as electricity companies go, they have to transform how they go and they have to transform how they operate. So it might be the case that they limit the number of um, customers that they're able to take on in the first case, which again would mean that the other players would be competing in that market as, as normal. However, it does also kind of set a benchmark. And I think that's something that Ofgem uses as a kind of regulatory power is to use benchmarks and say, well, if this company is able to do this, how are you able to perform so badly against that? So when you have a public utility like electricity, which, you know, all the electrons are the same, there's no difference in the products, then the performance of companies can be benchmarked against each other because they're all essentially doing the same thing, but they have to perform to the same level. And if a public utility is able to do it better, it will you know, receive more customers over time. But it also sets, you know, precedent for how the customer should be treated and what they should experience and the exposure they should get to the market. But a public supplier won't solve all the problems we have in the energy market. A lot of those calls on the generation side, you know, there's very little suppliers can do about high prices, but they can take a longer term view if it's public. They can start to insulate people a bit better and they can do more innovation. They can take a longer term view. And that's really critical. So I think. You know, if you were to look at a good example of an energy supplier in the market, you'd have to say Octopus have done really well. And they've been really, you know, cutting edge in some of the things they've done, whereas other companies have rather lagged behind and they haven't been as innovative. So one thing you might point to that um, Octopus has done is try and support more electric vehicles through the agile tariff. 
Now, that was something any of the competitors could have done, but they never had the incentive to do it because there was no pressure and there was no desire to innovate. It was just to keep the same business model, which was really profitable. Now, if there's a public utility setting the space and saying, you know, we're going to do that innovation, that becomes the bar for other companies and they're forced to innovate and they're forced to deliver a better service and a better product for everybody in order to stay competitive. It doesn't necessarily mean that there'll be 60 million people on one supplier. You know, that's not likely to happen anytime soon, but it does put pressure on them to innovate and improve their service. And Keir mentioned this target of 100% clean energy by 2030. That's going to mean a lot more wind, solar and tidal power, isn't it? I mean, is that target possible? It's certainly a challenge. I mean, I think it's good to take a long-term view and say that's where we want to be in eight years' time. The big problem in energy policy is uncertainty. And, you know, the issues we've had around Tinkley points, if you set up your stone and say this is where you want to get to, you know, how are you going to set up that mix? And there's a lot of research around that area that can support those ideas and what needs to be done. You know, more interconnectors, more generation building that out, but also improvements in efficiency as well. And I think that's one thing that's probably been not as focused on as much is and has a really big impact. And maybe a public supplier would be able to enable that would be better use of retrofitting and improvement in building quality in order to uh, reduce bills at the domestic level. But it's certainly something that's feasible. It's certainly something that's ambitious. It needs to be backed up with investment. It needs to be backed up with long-term thinking and giving people the certainty in the market to make decisions to support that kind of target. And we know the grid at the moment can't run solely on renewables because it needs a fairly consistent supply of energy. Is it possible for some form of battery system to provide that if we did move much more towards green energy? So that's a, a really interesting angle on, on where the electricity market has developed a lot in the last few years. You've had the emergence of a new type of company called uh, Energy Aggregator. So companies like uh, Lime Jump, who were bought by Shell, companies like Habitat Energy, and uh, Arenco Group would be another very uh, a very serious player in that market. And essentially, they work in the electricity market as um, a sort of storage trading energy by charging up batteries when the prices are low and selling them back when the prices are high. So they're essentially operating to help with intermittency. They're helping kind of smooth out the demand profiles and they really kind of show their worth when there's a lot of very, very high demands and not the generation to support it. So there is precedent for storage being profitable, being valuable in these markets and it being part of the solution when it comes to renewables integration. So this is already happening as the price of batteries goes down. I'm sure we're going to see more scale and more growth there. There's the talk of the Gigafactory in Wales and, and all this that needs to be done, the Faraday Institute at the UK. So UK is investing in kind of battery research at the moment, and the potential impact it can have is, is significant. So the real problem we have with renewables is the peaks and the intermittency. If we have a certain level of base load, say from nuclear, then we can top that up with renewable and storage kind of combinations. And again, pointing to something like um, the Agile tariff from Octopus, that has helped in the past times when there's been high demand or times when there's been very low demand. So they've asked people to plug in their electric vehicles because the grid had far too much energy on it. It was going to black out unless someone stepped in and took all that energy off the grid. And National Grid were very vocal in kind of praising that kind of technology. So a public utility with the kind of ability to integrate those systems and support that transition would help accelerate goals for a 2030 uh, renewable target. And obviously, energy security has this year proven to be hugely important. Is this idea of a great British energy company more likely to help the UK than, for example, opting for fracking and selling on the gas from that? It's the more logical solution. It's certainly something that's 
much more within the kind of space of easy to see how it would make a big contribution. You know, you can see the value in it. You can see how it would work. You can see fracking, however, I think is a huge amount of unknowns around that. And, you know, the figures being thrown around are very suspect. Ideas of being able to only recoup 10% of what's kind of estimated, the impacts it would have on the environment and the problems that it would bring really don't make it a part of the solution as I see it. Again, security is really important, but again, through interconnection and electrification of demand, we can really improve that significantly by you know moving heating away from gas and reducing our gas demand that way by putting it all into electricity and then having a publicly owned electricity supplier that is really innovative, resupports customers in you know transitioning from say uh, you know domestic heating to a heat pump and having a much better tariff that supports that and having the presence of mind and the kind of agenda to invest in the research needed to build the kind of technology that we need to have a much more efficient, well-managed energy system. There's more news, interviews and analysis in the Evening Standard newspaper and online at standard.co.uk. That's The Leader. Thanks for listening. We're back tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.